I'm guessing you own something, something really, really expensive, one of the most expensive things you've ever purchased, but you're not that aware of exactly what it looks like. But before we can talk about that, I want to share the tragic story of Eleanor Velasco Thornton. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about tech adoption and longevity. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. And then a seven-year-old kid in, in Texas starts knocking on doors, and he's asking for his age in dollars. 77, 777. He raises 22 grand. And we said, wow, this is a big idea. You know, everybody in the world could care about clean water. Everybody in the world has a birthday every year. And we have enough stuff. What if we could turn the birthday into a giving moment, into an unselfish day, our birthdays, so people could live longer and have birthdays? To find out more, visit charitywater.org. Thornton, who was known as Thorn by her friends, was a secretary with an impoverished background. She lived in the early 1900s. She was the secretary of John Walter. John Walter was an editor at an up-and-coming car magazine called The Car. That magazine was owned by the super-fancy, elite, status-focused Baron Montague. Baron John Montague was, of course, married. He was married to Lady Cecil Victoria Constance Kerr. But when he met Thorne, he fell in love with her. Not only did he have an illicit affair with a secretary at the magazine that he ran as a hobby, he also had a 1909 Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost, one of the fanciest cars anyone owned at the time. It wasn't fancy enough for the Baron Montague. And so he commissioned a friend, the famous sculptor Charles Robinson Sykes, because it wouldn't do to commission an unfamous sculptor, to craft a hood ornament for his fancy car, a way of showing everyone else how fancy his car was. That hood ornament was seven inches tall. Of course, not only did he commission Charles Sykes to make a sculpture for the hood ornament of his car, he asked the sculptor to make the ornament in the likeness of Eleanor Thornton. Yes, in fact, the woman he was unable to talk about in public because of her background of not being wealthy enough was on the hood of his car. The idea of these hood ornaments started to spread, and one after another, Rolls-Royces in the United Kingdom started to have these garish sculptures on the hood. Claude Johnson, the managing director of Rolls-Royce, could not abide this, so he went to the original sculptor, Charles Robinson Sykes, and asked him to make an official one. Well, he used the same model, Eleanor Velasco Thornton, and crafted the spirit of ecstasy. The owners of Rolls-Royce didn't particularly like the sculpture, but they realized they had little choice, and so it became official. And Rolls-Royces at the beginning offered it as only an option, but virtually every single person paid extra to have that hood ornament on the front of their car. It has been variously silver-plated, it has variously been nickel-plated, 
and every once in a while, it has been gold-plated. And current models of the Rolls-Royce have a device inside of it that will instantly retract the hood ornament when you park it so that no one can steal it. Now, lots of cars back in the day had a radiator right in the front, the radiator had a cap, and the radiator cap was the perfect place to put some sort of ornament. But that's not really what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the fact that at the beginning, horse-drawn carriages had two sorts of emblems on them. One of them was a discrete mark from the carriage maker who did the carriage itself. This was a hallmark, a way of signing one's work. It wasn't that obvious to a passerby. But the other thing many fancy horse-drawn carriages had were flags. Flags to indicate just how elite the passenger inside that wagon, inside that carriage, was to passers-by. And this flag is memorialized in many of the badges that we see in the front of a car. So the BMW emblem is nothing but a Bavarian flag in a circle. To this day, there are people who collect these badges. On eBay, a Mercedes-Benz hood ornament from 1929 costs about $3,000. But this isn't what I wanted to talk about. What I wanted to talk about is something that's on the back of your car, and my guess is you can't specifically tell me what it is. Because on the back of cars, for as long as people can remember, car companies have been listing some secret words. Which model number? How big is the engine? Does it have fuel injection? Is it a hybrid? The question is, why do they do this? The person driving the car knows what kind of car they're driving. The passerby, what are they looking at when they see these inscriptions on the back of the car? And why are they so unattractive? Has no car manufacturer ever taken a typography course? Why do they have such funny letter forms? Why are they filled with numbers and letters that don't make any sense? So I have a couple theories. Theory one goes back to the flags. Most cars, when they're working, are good enough. So if you're going to have a car that's good enough, why would you pay extra 2x, 3x, 10x more for a car that's better than good enough? The answer is to show bystanders the elite status of the person who is driving the car. In our culture, a culture where we don't wear suits and ties anymore, this is a remaining status badge, a way to show up in public and say, I have something really nice. We have things called car washes. There aren't a lot of good reasons, return on investment reasons, to get one's car washed. But a fancy car deserves to be shiny. Why? Not because the person inside can see it when they're driving, but because the person outside can see the signal. Now, what about the ugly fonts? What about the fact that the kerning doesn't make any sense? Well, my limited research has shown that most of the designs of the logos, the emblems, and the lettering on a car is done not by graphic designers and typographers, but by car engineers. The person who engineered the car, who made that thing that's not going to break down, in their spare time, 
they made a logo too. Maybe they based it on the wallpaper they saw in a French hotel. That's how we ended up with that funny plus sign that is the Chevy logo. Maybe there's some tortured history as to how it came to be. And those letters on the back? Well, those letters on the back are generally chosen first and foremost for how easy are they going to be to manufacture. And it's only in the last few years we've been able to manufacture amazing typography out of durable things like metal for a reasonable price. But one of the things that goes through the heads of everybody who is making a car is, can we remind people of the car they grew up with? Because a car is such a big purchase, we don't want to do something flimsy or risky, that there aren't that many early adopters in the car business. People play it safe because it's a status decision and a significant financial decision. But here's the real point of this little bit of a riff. When you see cars driving down the road, you are almost certainly paying more attention to cars like yours. When you buy a red Honda, suddenly you notice just how many red Hondas there are in the world. And when you pull up near a car that's like yours, you are reading the emblems on the back because you got nothing else to do because you're not texting while driving, right? You're reading the emblems on the back. And the main purpose of writing 325 with an I next to it, the main purpose of writing 95D, the main purpose of saying diesel or turbo or announcing a new model through the little logo on the back is to make all the people who don't have the latest version of that car feel like they are behind. That you are breaking their self-assurance by showing them that there's a new model out there and they don't have it. That the purpose, the marketing purpose of all of those letters and numbers on the back of cars is to make all their previous customers feel insufficient and insecure. It's fascinating to note that recent models of the Tesla don't seem to be doing this. This is a huge error from a P&L point of view because the kind of person that went out to buy a Tesla in the first place is a neophiliac. They like doing things that are new. Well, by announcing to every person who already has a car that something even newer has come along, what you end up doing as a car company is perversely creating a sort of satisfaction because the customer of the previous model knows that they bought a car from a company that continues to innovate. And it creates a thirst in them, a thirst for the next one, because that's why they bought the last one, because they want the next one. The car companies learned a hard lesson when the Edsel failed. And that lesson wasn't don't name a car after your son. That lesson was you can't keep accelerating how soon most people are going to buy a car. That it used to be that you had a car for who knows how long. The idea that new car models came every year, that it was a big announcement, like the new year in the theater or the new year in the movies after the Oscar seasons are over, there was going to be a new year in cars. That you don't have a 58, you don't have a 59, you are falling behind. 
if it were up to the car companies, they'd come out with a new model year every month because their goal is to cause people to continue to upgrade. Lord knows the computer companies don't have any hesitation about coming up with new models as often as they possibly can. But the difference between a computer and a car is we notice everybody else's car. And that car you just drove by is a billboard. It is a billboard whispering to other people who already know about that car that it has been upgraded. And so the cycle continues. The cycle of sort of clunky logos that remind us of the sort of clunky logos that reminded us of the sort of clunky logos. It's a cycle where the hood ornament for the Rolls Royce has gone from seven inches to three inches and that shrinkage is based on safety. But the people who seek status, the people who seek status continue on this cycle of telling themselves that they need the new model because the new model is safer or faster or better. And what about Eleanor? Well, a few years after the sculpture in front of every Rolls Royce was based on her, she and the Baron John Montague went on a cruise, illicitly continuing their affair in private. That cruise, that boat to India, it was attacked in 1915 by a German U-2 boat, and the boat sank. Eleanor died, and it was thought that the Baron John Montague died as well, but somehow he got himself onto a raft, and several days later, he was rescued. And I'm not sure why, maybe it has to do with seven-inch hood ornaments, but my hunch is that he did something probably not very nice to be the only person left on that raft. Status roles, luxury goods, scarcity, who's up, who's down. This is all lived out loud every day on the LA freeway. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a bunch of questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. This podcast is growing, it's spreading, not because I'm promoting it, but because you are telling other people, and I appreciate that. And the number of questions coming in keeps going up, and the questions keep getting better. So thank you for that. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. We've got two questions to start with 
They don't seem related, but they are. So I'll play them both back to back. Hi, Seth. This is Phil in the United States in Indianapolis, Indiana. I just listened to your podcast on consolidation publishing, and it really made me think deeper about connecting with people that are like me, reading books like me, and so on. At the end of the podcast, you said, we want to find those people that are like us and reading books like us and connect to those people. And I've been thinking this for a while. And inside the corporation I work, which is a large corporation, I have a very niche role there. And I have a group of people that I connect with. But I find myself wanting to stretch my mind and my thinking and my knowledge beyond the bounds of that corporation. And so I want to find people that are outside of that corporation to connect with and share these ideas. I know they're out there. And I honestly have a few people in mind that I could connect with. But I want to make sure that as I reach out and connect with those people to build a community, I do it in a way that builds enrollment and engagement and the right attitudes. So how can I step into this ahead? What can I do to take that knowledge of building that group in a corporation to applying that outside of? And what may I be coming against? What type of fear do you think I'm experiencing? Or what kind of things are holding me back there? Thanks so much, Seth. Hey, Seth. This is Dave from Glendale, California. And uh, just had a question regarding when you find yourself in a mid-career slump, say, you know, you're approaching kind of the the middle of your career and um, find yourself maybe just having a tougher time finding work or anything else. What's a good mindset to keep in mind in terms of uh, of figuring out what's next? I know it's tempting to think of uh, re-enrolling into some school or chasing after some, be some new degree or some midlife kind of switch. But, um, you know, I find myself thinking that that's hiding much like you mentioned on the show. So anyways, like to hear your thoughts on that. And uh, thanks for all you do. Thanks, Phil, for this. Your desire to weave together community is really valuable. It's the way we make things better. It's the way we improve and learn. And Dave, I know the feeling. That mid-career slump is a sign that you're listening. You're listening to the voice in your head, and you're aware that we don't have forever to do the work we want to do. And the way forward in both is to realize that if we invite someone to connect with us, we are doing them a real service. If the connection is about them and their work and where they're going, if we're offering them status and affiliation, and if someone honestly says, no, it's not for me, we've learned something. But better to learn something than to ignore them altogether. So my argument is we find the smallest viable group, maybe in the case of Phil and Dave, it's only five people. Find five people who are intellectually curious, five people who want to join a book group, five people who want to join a mastermind to challenge each other and support each other week after week. It's free. It's just a commitment. It's a commitment to be on Zoom together for 45 minutes every Saturday from 10 a.m. to 10.45 a.m. Show up. Show up ready to contribute. Show up ready to learn, to do the work. I bet if you think really hard, if you extend yourself, you'll find a dozen or two dozen people who are worth asking. Ask them one at a time. You'll put together an all-star group. And it might be, as it was for me when Chip Conley did it in 1983, that you'll be remembering that 37 years later. 
So thank you both for leading. Hi, Seth. Um, this is Shivani from Chennai, India. Um, so I was just reading your uh, book, The Practice, and uh, I'm reading this paragraph where it says, it's hard to imagine Tim Cook blurbing a Samsung phone uh, because Apple seeks to corner the market, not spread an idea or create positive change. Uh, they're in the business of raising their stock price. Um, so I just had a quick thought on this uh, where, you know, you do mention that other authors uh, do blurb each other. Um, and uh, this question is coming from the fact that I am in an industry where I make uh, sustainable and vegan wallets uh, as an alternate to leather products. And, uh, you know, I also, I definitely seek to create positive change. I know that. But I also would not openly talk about my competitors because a person can only own one wallet and I do want to. Um, so, yeah, I would love to know your thoughts on that. Thank you. Thanks, Shivani. I'm going to put a link to your site in the show notes. I just bought one of your wallets. I want to disagree about something and agree about something else. I'll agree with this. You can never have too many books and you can never have too many songs on your hard drive and you can never have too many. Let's make a long list. But I'm also going to argue that every single person who buys one of your beautiful wallets already has a wallet. And as Tim O'Reilly famously said, our enemy is not piracy. Our enemy is obscurity. The number of people who have a vegan wallet is tiny. Your challenge is not to corner the market in vegan wallets. It's to grow the market in vegan wallets. That if you and the other people who do what you do all put links to each other on your pages, everyone's business would go up. We have to embrace the fact that our customers probably know more than we do about the market, about alternatives, about products that they need. So hiding information from them doesn't increase our market share. Hiding information from them simply decreases trust. That what we need to do if we're not trying to build the most valuable company in the world and corner the market, which I think is true for everyone who's listening to this today, what we need to do is realize that our goal is community, that our goal is helping people get to where they're going and giving them something to talk about. And one of the best ways to do that is to help them see the category the way you do. Greetings, Seth. This is Tracy from Ohio. I'm really enjoying reading your new book, this, The Practice, um, and it has sparked a question for me. Throughout my adult working life, I've always felt I was moving through a process where I'd suddenly stumble upon that thing that I'm most passionate about doing. The problem, at least for me, is that I have many areas of interest, marketing, branding, painting, wellness, nutrition, great design, fitness. Um, and when I move down one specific career path, I often find myself looking over my shoulder kind of longingly at that other thing that I love to do, kind of like the grass is always greener on the other side. I'm uh, past the 30-year career mark, so I feel like I should have arrived at the passionate work destination by now, but I haven't, or I don't think I have. Any hints on how I can get there, or am I already there without realizing it? 
thanks for all that you do. And I'm uh, also really enjoying the TMS uh, seminar. So thank you. Thank you for this, Tracy. I think it's true that the grass is greener. I think that it's a law of physics. The way the light hits the grass over there, the light bounces back, the photons change the shade of green, and the grass is greener over there. Of course it is, because far away you can't see the problems. All you can see are the possibilities. So you're a normal, intelligent, curious human, because you have lots of things that you would like to do. That's not up for discussion. What's up for discussion is, can you pick a thing? It doesn't have to be the thing. Simply a thing that you care enough about doing that you're willing to stick with it, even when the stuff on the other side seems greener. Because jumping from thing to thing is thrilling. I'm a jumper. The World Wide Web was invented for me. Oh, look, a puppy. I'll click on anything. But if you want to make a difference or if you want to make a profit, it turns out that it's on the other side of the chasm that things really start to heat up, that things really start to work. And so what we need to do is not pick the perfect thing, but to pick anything that we are willing to commit to and then commit to it long enough to get to the other side. Hi, Seth. It's Ben Courier from Colorado. I've been really enjoying the practice, and I love your mentality and advice about failure. I've recently started a podcast as The Failure Guy, and I'm seeking to embrace the importance of failure as a necessary step on the path towards success. My question is, what advice can you give to those people who want to embrace the power of failure, but struggle to look at each misstep as an opportunity to grow? How can we shift the mindset of a willing participant to help rid the word failure of all its nasty sting? Thanks again for everything you do, and I look forward to hearing your answer. Ben, I love this project. I want to just highlight, though, that failure, experiencing failure, isn't the point. It turns out it's a fear of failure. That's the problem, to paraphrase FDR. Not fear, but the fear of fear. It's the whole idea of what we say or do to avoid even feeling like we might confront fear. This is one of the challenges of teaching someone to swim. If there's three feet of water, two feet of water, every rational thought says it is not dangerous to stand in two feet of water with a swimming instructor standing next to you. But most people who are afraid of swimming will not do this. And it's not because they're afraid of drowning. It's because they're afraid of the fear. And so what we have is a chance to engage in a practice of getting ourselves closer to the feeling of fear. Back to the swimming example. A dear friend, I taught them how to swim in the following way. I bought some inexpensive scuba goggles. We went to the pool, sat by the side of the pool, and I filled the goggles with water. So we're sitting on solid ground. And I said, let's put the goggles on over our eyes and nose. So you can still breathe through your mouth. Every single synapse in your brain is telling you that you're sitting on solid ground. You're not even wet except for your face. You're breathing through your mouth. But when you open your eyes, it looks like you're underwater. If we can reprogram our brain in that way, we're able to get to the next step. So the same thing is true here as we approach our practice, which is to develop the habit of feeling fear. We don't need to hurt other people through our practice of failure. We simply need to confront for ourselves 
what it feels like to get that close to it. Here's one more to wrap up our bonus edition of Q&A. Hey, Seth, this is Mickey from Atlanta, Georgia. In your last episode, you said that personality tests are essentially horoscopes, and I don't tend to agree. I do agree that personality tests shouldn't limit who we are or what we do, but I find that personality tests can be a great way to gain empathy for others. As the owner of a small company, I thought it was best if I treat my employees nicely, but that's not really the case. Being nice is nice, but they need to be treated differently. Through personality tests, I learned that one employee really enjoys 10 minutes of chit-chat each morning before we start, but another would go bonkers with 10 minutes of chit-chat. Understanding those differences is huge. In related vein, my wife is a two on the Enneagram, which makes her a, quote, helper. As we unpack that, it means not only does she go out of her way to help others, which is obvious to anyone that meets her, but that she innately thinks that others can see her needs just as easily, which we can't. Discovering that has been great for both of our perspectives. So my question is, am I off base here? Are personality tests just horoscopes, or can they help us better understand the people around us? Thanks for all you do. Thank you for this, Mickey. Yes, there's no doubt in my mind that personality tests are astrology. They're horoscopes. But there's also no doubt in my mind that horoscopes work. They're just not true, but they work. They work because a well-written horoscope that lands on a receptive person's desk helps them find their truth helps them dig through the stuff that they have been fibbing to themselves about. And so your wife, who sounds like a fine individual, may have gotten a certain score on some personality test, but even if she didn't get that score, it would be about a defect in the test. That's not about her. And a conversation, getting to know somebody, is a much more direct way than the bank shot of figuring out what score they got on some profit-making test regime, that that person who doesn't like 10 minutes of chit-chat with you in the morning, well, it might make more sense to figure out a level of intimacy and mutual trust that they could just tell you that. Because there's lots of things that you need people to tell you that aren't going to come through in a personality test. So my problem with these tests is not that they don't occasionally come out with horoscope-like truths. The problem is when they're wrong, people don't know what to do. When they're wrong, people get hooked on the results and make bad choices instead of speaking actual truth about what they're facing. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet, like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but When are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. 
not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.